Hello, uh, good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Sibi. Some of you guys may have not come here for a long time and have not seen me without a beard. So surprise, I have no hair on my chin, and it's very cold outside now for some reason. But um, yeah, for the past two years, I've been growing this thing, and I feel like I'm a new person now. But it's good. Even, even as long as I've been at Seven Mile Road, I've had a beard. So I feel like even everyone here doesn't even know me. <laughs> I met Kevin, or I saw Kevin today, and he walked in, didn't recognize me. So um, bear with me as I go through these several next weeks, trying to get used to this beardlessness. But um, I'm thankful for being able to give, have, have the opportunity to share with you today about uh, some of what God's doing at Seven Mile Road through a ministry uh, that we're doing here. Um, when I was asked to share uh, today, I was thinking about how to go about it, what to cover, and it's difficult because the subjects that I'm going to be covering today, it's, they're, they're an array of subjects that it's hard to, I guess, pull out one scripture and just talk about from that. So the nature of today's talk is going to be a little different in the sense that we're going to start out with a passage, but at the end I'm going to pull out a few other passages uh, to sort of uh, affirm what we're talking about today. So if you're sitting here today believing in Jesus Christ, believing that He came to this earth, um, that He died for us, praise be to God for you, for you have salvation. Um, You have received a gift from God that you do not deserve. You received something that you have done nothing to earn. It's purely God's grace. Um, In God's infinite wisdom and mercy, He has chosen to give you salvation. There's literally nothing in the world, nothing in the world that you can have that is greater, more valuable, everlasting than this. But I also realize with those statements, I'm saying that, believing that it's true, but that there are several, maybe thousands, millions who exist now, existed before, will exist in the future, that just don't believe what I just said. There are among society today so many different views, so many different ideologies to talk about the idea of truth. Um, You may be sitting here today unsure of what you believe, even if you have grown up in the church or grown up in, in religious settings, or if you have not. In life, we go through these moments of doubt questions, and it's, it's the nature, I guess, of, of human, humankind. Um, and just as Ajay said, we want you to know that in this journey of life, um, no matter what comes about, that we want you here. We, we really mean that when we say you're welcome here, it's not just a thing that we say, but we want to be able to be a part of your journey in finding truth. Um, today, I'm supposed to be speaking about the nature of truth, and it's, it's a big topic, and as one scholar has said before, when you uh, when you're asked to talk about truth, it's as if you're asked to describe God and give three examples. It's, it's a big, big issue that we're talking about here. So please uh, forgive me for being very condensed and vague about some of the stuff that we're talking about here in this one, one speech. Um, I'll be loosely basing this talk on one I gave a few months ago addressing the question of if there is more to life on this earth than we know. Um, and before we get into our talk, I want to read just one passage from from John chapter 14, uh, 6 to 7. I'll read it quickly. It's something, it's a verse that we are very familiar with. John chapter 14, verses 6 to 7. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. We'll pray first and ask God to guide our our time together right now. 
God, we thank You that You have given us grace. Though we are unworthy, Father, You have chosen for some reason to save us, to give us truth, and You even allow us to talk about whether or not You even exist. What, what is man that we even have a right to question you, Father, the maker, creator, sustainer of all of life? But we thank you that you have. You have given us this opportunity to talk about faith, to talk about truth and life and meaning, that you have not made us creatures who just have no will of our own, that we are, but we are able to, in your grace, through your grace, believe in you. And Father, right now we give this time into your hands that you would be able to um, take my words, my simple words, but use it for your glory somehow that you would uh, speak to hearts, open hearts, reveal truth in our minds, in our hearts, in our souls deeply that we would be able to profess and live for you. We thank you once again, Father, for your grace. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Um, in a research study done by the Barna Group about a, two or three years ago, um, over two-thirds of Americans have said that truth is relative, that it's not absolute. Two out of three Americans have said that, yet four out of five Americans are Christian. Um, secular humanism would say that purpose and meaning in life finds itself in the happiness of man. That, that your happiness, my happiness, is at the center of meaning and truth. The idea of nihilism suggested by Nietzsche would suggest that the, the pursuit to even find meaning is meaningless. You cannot even uh, articulate properly what meaning is because there is no such thing as absolute meaning. In this life, in our society, there's a lot of noise blaring opposing thoughts trying to grasp our, I guess, idea or our notion of what truth is. Tons and tons of views out there. Is it possible for a person to consider every single view, every ideology, every dogma is it possible for you to argue from every angle? I don't think so because there's always going to be one more thing that you can say. There's always going to be another analogy that you can use. But truth has to be attainable, right? There has to be something that you can feel, think, or do to bring meaning to your life. There has to be something. If some of us are honest with ourselves today, there are moments in life, as I said before, where we are uncertain, we may have doubts in our mind that taunt our minds when events such as 9-11 or events such as the recent destruction in Haiti occur, we wonder why would there be a God if He claims to be a loving God do all this to a people who don't have anything uh, wrong to show for it. Why, why would he, he, he inflict injury and pain and death upon people who are good, essentially good? In moments of solitude or chaos, Questions of our existence and humanity stare us stark in the face, demanding resolve, demanding answers. And so we ask questions of, who am I? A question of identity. Why am I here? A question of meaning and purpose. And where am I going? A question of destiny. And our society is continually leading toward one end of the spectrum, wondering if truth can even be attained, if you can even find truth. The seemingly absurd question of whether or not a question is even valid, they're dominating our university campuses today and dominating uh, panel discussions and several books written by several authors all over the world. We have convinced ourselves that we are simply here by chance, that there's no description of why things are, simply of what is that we can see. We look to the views of skepticism and see that they are constantly engaged in the overthrowing of all dogmas, never articulating anything for themselves. In our society today, 
exclusive claims to religion are considered unenlightened, imperialistic, arrogant, and even insensitive to the views of others. Talk show host Oprah Winfrey, uh, I have my own uh, views on her, but she's, she's, a, she's a good person, but she says this, that there are millions of ways to be a human being and many paths to what you call God. There couldn't possibly just be one way. Several ways, millions, she says. Some view religion sort of as a mosaic or a kaleidoscope as a number of different beliefs that can make up a complete, beautiful pattern about the nature of God and ultimate reality. This past Thursday, I'll talk more about this later, but this past Thursday we had about 13 folks gathered here up, upstairs um, that gathered to talk about this very issue of exclusivity. Is there more than one true religion that exists at any given time? The issue of exclusivity is one of the most troublesome aspects of Christianity for those who do not accept it. Amidst so many different views on life and reality, how do we know that there is a God? How can you really say that there is a God? I was listening to a lecture once uh, by a professor in Africa. Uh, he's a professor who is a cosmologist. He studies the origins of the universe. During a lecture once, he put up a, a slide on a large size projection screen, bigger than the one here, probably twice that size. He put up a picture, an image of this, of this thing on this projection screen. And the slide was an actual image he had taken that was filled with stars. This entire screen was absolutely filled just with stars. He said, if you were to count every star on this slide at a rate of one per second, it would take you 2,800 years to count them all. If you were to count every star on this large screen, it would take you 2,800 years to count them all. I can't wrap my head around that. Just counting one star per second for 2,800 years, that's how many stars is on this, on this screen. Then he put up another slide. The slide was a picture of a cosmic pillar of dust that went from the bottom to the top of the screen. This, this picture of the cosmic pillar of dust. Um, he walked to the screen and put his hand up against a little wisp on the bottom, a, a little wisp of dust coming off of this pillar. And he said, do you see the distance between here and here? And he said, that is the distance across our own galaxy. Then he put up a third slide. It looked similar to the first slide. A lot of star-like specks of light. And he said, do you see this slide? He said, every single dot of light you see here is not simply a star. Every single dot of light you see here is an entire galaxy. Huge. Have you ever felt small? When you think about stuff like this, it would make you feel very, very small. Then he put up another slide. Nothing on it, just a blank square that filled the screen. He said, if I were to give you a pen and ask you to represent pictorially the significance of your existence in relation to that of the universe, how would you portray it? And before anyone said anything, he said, if you were to take a pin and just prick that square, it would be to overstate the size of your size in significance to that of the universe. Just a small prick. And then he made one simple point after all this. He said, you and I are all carbon-based life forms. Carbon can only exist when various fundamental forces in the universe occur at certain equilibrium. We live in a universe that is 15 billion light years across in size. And guess what? That certain and precise equilibrium occurs within our universe. Ours that is 15 billion light years across. Then he put up his blank square again and asked, how significant is your existence in relation to the size of this universe? 
Our universe is the precise size it needs to be in order to permit the existence of just one carbon-based life form, just one person. But aren't you glad that you are not alone? Can you see how significant it really is that we exist? To permit life to exist on this planet, it's ridiculous when you think about it. Listen to the reading from Francis Collins. He's the former director of the Human Genome Project. Who is a, he's a physician geneticist. He says this in one of his books. When you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as if, the, if it knew we were coming. There are 15 constants. The gravitational constant, various constants about the strong and weak nuclear force, etc., up to 15, all that have a precise value. If any one of these values were off by just one million, or in some cases a million million, by one part in a million million, the universe could not have actually come to the point we see it today. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would have been no galaxy, stars, planets, or people. Maybe we are not here by chance. Maybe we are here by design. If we are here by design, the thing we are talking about today, meaning and truth, must be not accidental, but intrinsic within the universe. Then purpose must be found once you make contact to the creator who made this entire universe. The question then becomes of all of the schools of thought that are pulling for our belief, which is true and who is this creator? If you take almost any religious or philosophical system in the world, it is pretty much rooted or grounded in one of three or a combination of three um, things. One thinking, the first is thinking, which is to engage, master, and grasp certain ideas um, that give you the keys to unlock the mysteries of life. So that's thinking. Two is feeling, which is to engage with feelings those mystical moments and experiences in life that will offer meaning to life. The third is doing. This is more pragmatic, which is doing things that will show and build meaning in your life, doing good things. The Christian faith cannot be reduced to any one or a combination of these things. You cannot become a Christian by thinking or engaging or accepting certain doctrinal beliefs even though there is nothing more profound than to know Jesus. You cannot become a Christian by feeling or having some experience, same, a, a strange mystical experience, although there is nothing more incredible than meeting Jesus. You cannot become a Christian by doing Christian things, even though Jesus has said that Christians would be known by what they do. Jesus Christ did not come to simply give us a knowledge of God, to, to have an experience of God, or even to tell us to do things to impress God. Jesus came into this world as God Himself to give Himself. Jesus Christ was the Word, became flesh. He was it. He was meaning and purpose incarnate. Christian faith is grounded in being, not in thinking, feeling, or doing. Coming to know Jesus isn't just an experience in life. Coming to know Him is the moment of life itself. It is where life begins. One theologian recently said, Some will say, I am happy with the way my life is. Why should I bother with Jesus? I have everything. And this theologian says, But that is assuming that you have a life to be happy with. Life only begins when you meet Jesus. Life can only be found in Jesus and life does not exist outside of Him. I was asked today to also share some of my own experience of wrestling through my faith and through my doubts. Um, about two years ago, 
I went through a time of utter lostness, utter just emptiness, as I began to question the sheer nature of truth. I began to question my existence, and it led me to valleys that I thought I would never escape from. If, you, if, if we were to talk about some of these things, you would think I was crazy. But it led me to think about things I never considered before. And you see, I grew up in the church. Um, I, divided, I devoted my entire life to service for God. Um, I was staffed at that time at a different church, and I was studying Bible at the time. And here, in the midst of all of this, my faith was lying, deteriorating. It left me feeling empty, um, disillusioned, completely disoriented and deserted. And I felt like I had no way to explain any of it. Um, you can imagine the fracture in my soul that soon seemed like a, a gaping cavern, revealing areas of my faith and my life that seemed absolutely superficial and fundamentally weak. Um, this then led me to ask questions about meaning in life through philosophy, through, through different books, through different ideologies, because I simply did not find meaning and much density in the form of Christianity I knew or I saw others to believe as well. Um, when I took a step back, when I surveyed what I actually believed and what I built my spiritual life upon, it was like cement before you added water to it. You can just put your hands right through it and throw it in the wind to never be seen again. It was so shallow. Um, my response to God was primarily based on emotion about these things that I would do. It was based on how well I would perform in life as to make me more saved if I did more and more of these things. I could read through the words of Jesus in the book that I proclaimed to believe in and gloss over what it really meant for me to live as. I would fall back on the proper religion to justify my spirituality. Toss out a few Christian cliches here and there. You know, put on this kind of Christian persona. Get all riled up for the fast worship songs and get solemn for the ones that were more quiet. I would keep up this appearance of Christianity that somehow became manufactured in my mind. I don't know where it came from, but somehow down the line, I felt that this is what I was supposed to do and look like. For me, Christ was not at the center of Christianity for me. I was. What others thought were. My belief in God offered me security in life. It gave meaning to my life. For me, belief in God offered me security. It was Sibi who determined meaning and my salvation. John Piper, you, you may have heard of him before, says that the reason there is so much nominalism in the church today is because we do not even understand what receiving Christ really means. We come, we say prayer salvation, maybe even multiple times a year. We per perhaps then make a routine of attending church, maybe even on a worship team or speak occasionally. We do these Christian things. We don't curse. We don't drink. We don't watch MTV. We don't do these things that are typically seen as unchristian. We have Christian bumper stickers on our car. We have the Christian radio blasting. We, have, we listen to the dramatized Bible on CD on our drive. We've even made our automobiles Christian. We do all of these things, right? Are these things necessarily wrong? No, not at all. But is this where the crux of Christianity can be found? Absolutely not. We set up all of these rules that we try to keep. We convince ourselves that we have been good for keeping them. But when something bad happens or when your thought is challenged, faith then ceases. Mine ceased almost to a complete halt. As Piper continues to petition, many do not receive Christ for Christ. We receive Him as sin forgiver because we want to be guilt-free, not because we love Him. 
We receive Him as rescuer from hell because we don't want to be burned. As healer because we want to be disease-free. As protector because we want to be safe. As prosperity giver because we love having money. But we don't accept Christ because we truly love Christ. And over these past couple of years, I've had the opportunity to talk with numerous people over the past couple of years about some of these things in individual conversations, and it's been absolutely phenomenal. During this time of disbelief in God, um, I spent a lot of time engaging in conversation with atheists and others of different faiths. Um, what I found was that non-Christians are not the only ones who are frustrated with the disparity between what Christ looked like and how Christians live. Gandhi is famous for saying this, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians look nothing like this Christ that you profess. Christ simply seemed to me like someone who Christians would store away in their pockets as a, as a pass to heaven or as a ticket into these Christian so social circles of which they were a part. It seemed like nothing more than this thing, this, this exclusive thing or this thing that was detached from any actual difference in, in a person's life. I began to wonder if Christian life was just reduced to a mere belief. As simply believers in Him who did not really have a grasp on what it meant to live in Him. Um, Christians would appear to me, and even as I looked into my own life before that, Christians appear to, to present these beautiful books, glitzy titles and, and all, these, all these beautiful things, but when you would open the pages, you would just find emptiness, empty pages with no words written in. Leaders of the church to me seem like Pharisees who are preaching about Pharisees. It, it did not make sense to me. And I was desperately seeking during this time for something real to grab a hold of my mind, to grab a hold of me, to make sense of life again. Many look for solid, irrefutable evidence for belief in God. Otherwise, they would not believe. And I will save you the trouble if that's where you are today, but I encourage you to continue on your search. But I will save you the trouble that I do not believe that you would find something that you can look at and say, I found tangible evidence of God. But as Keller says in one of his books, he suggests that you will certainly find several clues to find it rather hard to deny the plausibility of God existing, though you may never find one single thing. Today, it's not my purpose to necessarily convince you of anything or to show you for an absolute certitude that you can look at God and say He exists, even with the illustration I gave before. I cannot make you think, feel, or do anything to, for you to accept Christ. And that will not bring you to salvation anyways. All I can do is tell you who truth is, and then your belief is out of my hands. But today I propose to you that yes, there is found in this world truth, true life, a meaning. Not just a, a relative meaning, but absolute meaning. And that that life is found in Christ. And that there is more to Christianity than what you may have considered before. That too is solely found in the person of Christ. I plead to you today that you, you would not let the image that Christians have portrayed of Christianity be the one that you base Christ upon. Don't let the, 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 the past of Christianity invalidate Christianity as a whole for you. If, if you want to know what led me back to faith in Christ, I'm not standing here today as one who does not believe in God, who sings songs 
about God, but do not profess. I believe in this God, but I, I will tell you now what brought me to faith in Christ. It was not man. It was not even a preaching that I heard. It was not ultimately rationale or logic or reading books or uh, contemplating philosophical thought of, of every spectrum or every sphere. It was simply Christ. I decided that rationale could only take me so far and it left me, honestly, just at a dead end. I decided not to let in Christianity invalidate Christ for me and so I began at this moment to, to, to build my life upon Christ despite everything else that I've learned it to be. And that's another conversation that we can have, but this, this, this new journey that I began was entirely different from anything that I've ever experienced. I can honestly say that the person I was three years ago is absolutely different from who I am right now. And I'll, I'll say in a little bit that it's not, it's not about me. It's nothing that I did. And I'll expound on that a little bit later. But at, at, this, time, at this point in time, in 2008, my world was absolutely flipped on its head. Everything looked different. And at times, if I would be honest, it was absolutely intimidating. When I, when I would open my eyes, I would see things that were new, things that I saw before, but now I saw it in a different light. Um, this truth that I realized truly has not only brought uh, some kind of thing that I can say I, I find meaning to life, but it has, it has given me life itself. Not just to sim simply give it meaning to say, look, I found meaning, but it was more than that. I found that life without Christ is not only meaningless, but that if I did not know Christ, that I would not see life. But also if I knew Him, that I would not taste death. So Christ meant for me life and no death. That, that my spirit would live on. This was not an emotional response of something I read from a novel. This was real. This was true. This was reality for me. The founders of every other major religion essentially came as teachers, not as saviors to say, do this and you will find the divine. They would say, do this, think this, feel this, and you would find the divine. Jesus did not come in this way. Jesus came essentially as a savior rather than as a teacher to say, I am the divine, I come to you. you I am doing for you what you could not do for yourself. True Christianity, true Christianity is about Christ who came for us, lived a life without sin, became sin on our behalf, that we would become the righteousness of God in Him. Do you realize that once you have accepted Christ, that you can now stand before a holy God and stand there without absolutely being destroyed, that He no longer sees you for who you are, he sees you through Christ, through what Christ has done for you. This frees us to live in Christ without feeling condemned. This entire notion blew my mind. I did not grasp this before. When Jesus was on the cross and said his last words, it is finished. This was not a cliche that he was throwing out hoping that people would recite it years from then and put it in songs or make entire slogans out of. But this was real. This was not, in fact, a phrase of defeat. It was the entire opposite. It was actually a phrase of victory, saying that what has happened on the cross has been done for good. 
period. It was in fact a victorious claim of what just happened. The work of Jesus Christ crucified on the cross completed the work of salvation for us. There's nothing we can do. We could do nothing and do not need to do anything to save ourselves. For He has done everything. What incredible news this is for us today as we sit here who think we need to impress God or put on some kind of a a, a beautiful life or do everything perfectly to impress God. He has already accepted us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Not because of us, but because of Christ. It's nothing that we have done. Jesus came into this world and did something completely different from anyone else, any other philosopher, any other religious uh, figure. He came and did something completely different. He said that if you come to me, you are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. We search everywhere to find meaning in life. And purpose has, and, and we, we come to these, these conclusions that there is no meaning in life. We become disillusioned by everything around us and it leaves us feeling lost, empty, and disoriented. And I want you to know that I really, I really get it. I understand what you are saying if that, is who you, if, if that is where you are right now. I know what it feels like to question your whole existence, to wonder whether or not you actually exist or not. We, we try to think deep, though. We try to feel deep. We try to do things, and we try to become good people. But it doesn't matter what you think, how you feel or what you do, you cannot change who you essentially are, and that is a sinner. Jesus comes along and says, let me take who you are and make something new out of it. You can have a new, true identity in me. Who Jesus is, is the solution itself, himself, to who we are. Who Jesus is, is himself the solution to who we are. There's nothing else. It is through the abundant grace of God that we can believe and continually live in Christ. To become a Christian is not to enter into uh, abstract philosophical speculation and commit yourself to a, uh, a system of thought or doctrine. It is not to say you're going to try and say you're going to have certain religious beliefs or experiences and enjoy going to church for the rest of your life. It is not even a promise to do good things and be good to people, people as noble as that may be. To become Christian is to know who you truly are before God, a child of His who has fallen away through sin that is now broken and marred. To understand who Christ is, that He is God who came to us and has taken all of that sin, garbage, and put it on Himself, paid the price for us and conquered it, and He comes to us now and offers us new life. I will tell you with every assurance of my being, once you have Christ, you have true life, and to have anything less is meaningless. C.S. Lewis um, says this, that Christianity, if false, is of no importance. But Christianity, if true, is of infinite importance. But what it is most certainly not is moderately important. So if this thing is actually true, it's, it's not okay just to say, if Christianity works for me, I'll do it. But if you find Christianity to actually be true, it's not something that you just choose to add to your life. It's infinitely important. It's not moderate belief. It's not nominal belief. You commit yourself to this thing. It's not something that you can say is relative. It is exclusive that we believe in Christ. 
as, as arrogant as that may seem to some, we believe in Christ because He is true. He is real. Truth is given to us only by the grace of God, and Christ calls us, in, in, in our context at Seven Mile Road, Christ calls us to portray, to convey this truth, and to be on mission to convey this truth to the world. And so as I close today, I want to read a passage from Acts 17, 16 to 18. Um, and I'll, I'll say a few more words after that, but this passage is from Acts 17, verses 16 to 18. And we will not have uh, time today to exposit or expound upon this, this passage today, but I want to highlight a missional work Seven Mile Road, is, as Ajay said, is doing as this conversation from this passage continues. It reads in verses 16 to 18. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue, synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Doubt nights, which, which occur um, on Thursdays, are forums in which people in our city get together to talk about matters of life, truth, meaning, questions, address all kinds of different things. We invite skeptics, we invite atheists, people of different religions, even Christians, to get together and engage in dialogue about matters of, of truth and to, to, to dialogue about the doubts that people may have also specifically with the Christian belief. Um, and I want to say to you that it is indeed the self-authenticating witness of the Holy Spirit that gives us the fundamental knowledge that Christianity is true. Therefore, the role that reason plays is a secondary one in these conversations. The reformer Martin Luther says this, and I believe he, he illustrated it accurately when he distinguishes between the role of, uh, of reason. He calls for two, two types of uses of reason. That's the magisterial role and the ministerial role. He, he outlines these two, and he says, the magisterial use of reason occurs when reason stands over and above the gospel, when it looks down like a magistrate and judges it on the basis of argument and evidence, where that's all that you base it on. The ministerial use of reason occurs when reason submits to and serves the gospel. So in our context, even in these dialogues, where we are coming from is not that reason is the, the absolute form of uh, sort of advocating for belief or that legitimizes belief in the Christian doctrine. But if we use it properly, the ministerial use of reason would be the servant of the gospel. In light of the Spirit's witness, only the ministerial use of reason is legitimate. And therefore, so in philosophy, it's rightly so that reason is the handmaid of theology. Reason is simply a tool to help us better understand and defend our faith. As one theologian put it, ours is a faith that seeks understanding. To abandon the mind in presenting the gospel to our city is both unbalanced and unscriptural. And I'm not saying that every person has to engage in these dialogues either. But if we abandon the use of the mind in presenting truth and the gospel to the world, we are being unbalanced and unscriptural with the way that we are doing it. In Luke chapter 10, verses 27, we're called not to just love with our heart and our strength and our soul, but we're commanded to love with our minds as well. That means a lot 
you can, you can go off of one end and maybe overuse that verse, but it means something for us practically. Reading, I'm going to read through quickly a few passages from Acts 17, 19, and 28 that I've just put together. We see that it was Paul's standard procedure to employ and present reason for the truth of the gospel and so defend the faith. That what we are talking about here is not unfounded in Scripture. In fact, Scripture calls us to do these things. In these chapters, it says um, a few different verses. And Paul went in, and it was his custom, and for three weeks he argued with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout person and in the marketplace every day with those who, ch who, was ch who were chanced to be there. In another part it says, And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly to them from morning till evening, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said while others disbelieved. The scriptures command us to do this. In First Peter also, First Peter chapter 3, verses 15, it says to always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. To ignore the unbeliever's questions or objections is therefore unscriptural. We can never argue anyone into salvation. I would never say that I convinced myself logically through argumentation that I was convinced about the, the rationality or legitimacy of the Christian faith. And there are thinkers out there who would say that you can deduct, even mathematically, that God exists. But I wouldn't say that is necessarily so if we believe in the Scriptures. However, the Holy Spirit may use our discourse, our dialogue, to draw people to Himself. The sureness of God's grace through faith, as we see in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, producing a belief in a person does not overlook the need for us to demonstrate credibility. Just because you say it's, it's an act of God's grace through faith, it doesn't take away the need for us to establish some grounds on which someone would hear the gospel. How could you reach someone if you provide absolutely nothing for them to base what you're saying on? As, as Ajay read earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, God said, let, sh let light shine out of darkness has shunned in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. We have received this light. We have received truth. If you are believing in Christ, you have received the truth. And I want to say again, these nights are not meant to simply exercise the intellect or to engage in, in clever banter about different ideas. It's not about that. Although it is fun sometimes to be able to talk with other people of different beliefs. But that's not the purpose, just to exercise the intellect. Darkness exists in this world. And, ag and against this darkness is the truth of the gospel. So if we were to speak against the darkness of this world, we need truth to bring in light. Just as it says in, in that chapter, the light of the gospel has given to us, has been given to us to share with others. It's not something that we hide. It's not something that we simply speak of without giving any kind of reason for it. As we dialogue about truth, as we dialogue about our position, we, we base our positions on the word of truth given from God. Just as we preach from this pulpit, 
just as Paul reasoned in the city and in the marketplace, in the synagogue, so we engage the unbeliever to consider the, tr the truth that we proclaim. We are doing the same thing in a different context. And as I close, I implore you, I, I beg with you that you would pray for these nights. Um, these are big issues we are uh, considering. And even this, this past week, I meant to speak just for about 15 minutes talking about this idea of, of exclusivity, but it went for about 35 minutes. So it's, it's big topics we are talking about, not easy. And there, there are so many different views about this. So I really request that you would be praying for these nights. And also, if you feel a tug to be involved in this, or if you know people who would be uh, benefited from these nights, bring them out. Pray for these nights. Pray for those who come. That God would do what our human intellect fails to do, and that is to bring about faith through the grace of God. And so we'll pray now, and um, we'll move on with the service. God, we thank you once again, Lord, that you have come to us over and over again. I cannot help but look to your cross, see what you have done for me, that I am unworthy of anything, any pursuit apart from your grace to receive salvation. So, Father, even this day, we ask that, that this community would be about engaging the unbeliever, engaging the skeptic, not to provide a, an absolute basis for truth based on that, but that we, we, we would listen to the, to the doubts, that we would be able to engage uh, based on your word, truthfully, accurately, about what it says about you. God, we thank you once again for bringing us here to listen. I thank you for this chance that you have given me. Father, be with us. Guide us. May our, may our lives be centered around being on mission for you, whether we are in church, whether we are at work, whether we are at these forums, whether, whatever we do, that we would be mindful of what you have called us to do in your scriptures, in your gospel. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.